Hi, I'm Jackie Tantillo, and this is Should Have Listened to My Mother. Some people like to plot every step of their life in advance, from every turn or fork they take to how long they'll stay in one job, who they'll marry, and how many kids they want. Or perhaps you're one to just blow in the wind until you don't. That's what some call reaching a crossroad in our life. My guest, Steve McCurdy, is many things, including a podcast host, voice talent. He's recorded a number of audiobooks. He's former radio host, film director, and much more. His podcast is called The Crossroad Diner, where he says it's a spiritual diner at the crossroads of life, where your spirit goes when it might be time to change directions. We make many mid-course adjustments on our way to our best selves. Not long ago, I was featured as a guest on the Crossroad Diner. I love his premise. Something's got to give. I can no longer continue on this life path, acknowledging our fears and having the courage to step out regardless of the consequences is one of the best life lessons. Steve McCurdy is here to share stories of his mother, Margie, and the role that she played in his life. Hi, Steve. Nice to speak with you again. Hey, Jackie. Great to hear your voice. This is cool. You have done a lot of things. You're very busy. <laughs> you are. You're very busy. And um, and I love that. And you and I both have radio backgrounds. So if we have time, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. But first, I would love to get a sense of your mom, Margie. Tell us a little bit about her. Marjorie Maxwell uh, was a a really powerfully independent woman. Um, my grandmother, who did the most raising of me, was a crazy gal. Uh, she was a wild spirit. And she had, mother was first born and Uncle Bill was the second born and he got most of her crazy. So mother felt like she was raising both of them uh, from the time that uh, my grandmother and her father, mother's father were divorced at about uh, eight. Mother just took over uh, responsibility for things. And she did that until the day she died. She was the one who felt like it was up to her. Uh, she was a beautiful woman. She had uh, a wonderfully whimsical spirit that um, that sort of ended when uh, she and my biological father were divorced. And then they and then in the process of that divorce, they found out I was coming and had to stay married until I was born. Um, but she she had this wonderful sparkle about her that uh, that would come through, even though life was something of a burden to her. You said that she was the one that would take things over. Your mom, that's what you're yeah. referring to your mom. So what was her childhood experience like? Was it, was there some challenges in her experience as a kid growing yeah, up? Yeah. Uh, you know, she had this mother. My grandmother was married five times. Wow. And, yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> and yeah. And that's a lot for that era. Yeah. And, um, you know, Velma, Alma, Livonia, and, and then the last names go on for days. And she went back to Wood because he's the one that she liked the best as, as far as names are concerned. But um, so mother just didn't feel like she could really depend on my grandmother, on Velma, to um, 
to get all the I's dotted and the T's crossed, you know, dinner was going to be on, on the table, but it might be squirrel that the next door neighbor had shot. And, um, and so she just took it upon herself to get a job at 16 uh, at the local bank. And she retired from there 50 years later. She should have been a forensic accountant. She had an incredible mind. Um, she should have gone to college, but the only money they had for that went to her brother who then didn't do anything with it. Hmm. Uh, but she's the only, she was the only person to graduate from SMU with no undergraduate degree, but with a master's, she was a banker and the bank that she worked for. Um, and she was also the very first woman to become an officer of a bank in East Texas. She just was very independent, had a great, great, great mind, but was just kind of the responsible one from very early on. Right. She kind of, as they say, got shafted on life a little bit. Yeah. Was she happy? Um, no, I guess she struggled with a lot. Yeah. My biological father, Dick McCurdy, was, he was the classic tall, dark, and handsome. She was 5'2". He was 6'6". Six, six. He convinced her to marry him. Uh, she thought he was older than her. He was actually almost one year exactly younger than her. When she found out about that, she was just infuriated. And she had this she had this opinion. She had this very traditional set of values that said the man is supposed to be the provider and the woman is supposed to support that and raise the kids. And she learned, you know, very early into the into the deal that uh, this man that she had married was a will of the wisp. Uh, he was competent as a mechanic, but had an independent streak and, you know, constantly was getting fired. And when they finally figured out that all they had was heat. All they had was chemistry. They decided on a divorce and um, he left. And then on a visit back to town to, to see if there was anything salvageable, they had, uh, they had this one, you know, passionate night. And when they got up in the morning, they went, yeah, what we've got is chemistry, but we don't see eye to eye on life and how it should run and all that sort of stuff. So he left, but that night was me. That night hmm. brought, uh, started me. So about a month and a half into the divorce proceeding, they, she figured out she's pregnant. There was not a there was not a, a judge in Texas that would give a pregnant woman a divorce. So they wrote it out, and shortly after my birth, they they finalized the divorce, and that was in Arkansas, actually where I was born, where his parents were. And uh, she got put me in a car at three days old and drove me to Houston, Texas, and. Um, tried to start life as a mother of one, finally got back to Longview, Texas and got her job back as a teller in the bank. And, um, and your grandmother would watch you while your mom and, and my grandma. Yeah. My grandmother would take care of me. I was very, very sick. I, mother's stress when, when I was being born created a stomach condition in me that they thought they're going to have to operate on. But my grandmother heard about this. She drove 200 miles, which in 1950 was a long way on yeah. pretty crappy roads. And she got to the, the Catholic hospital that I was in, and the nuns didn't want to let her in. And she said, you penguins, get out of my way. Oh, and, oh uh, dear. <laughs> and she, she went through the hospital, found me, and uh, and took me out of the... Uh, Incubator? Uh, no, it was a uh, it was the little bassinet crib thing. Mm -hmm. She took me out of that and said, but one of you bring me a, a rocking chair. And oh. she was so authoritative that they just did it. And she took off everything of mine and put me inside of her clothing, mm -hmm. skin to skin, and rocked me. And um, when they came to try to see if I would take anything, I took a bottle. I, I hadn't eaten 
in six days since I'd been born. I was wasting away. But that whatever that did, um, I, I took nourishment after that. And your mom? And mom was a wreck. I mean, she was she didn't know how to take care of me. She was uh, I wouldn't. And I and I was I was rejecting her breast and she just. And so my grandmother took care of both of us, which that was the fascinating thing about this crazy woman is she was um, if you think Shirley. Oh, my gosh. I just went blank on her name. McLean. Shirley. Yeah. Shirley McLean <laughs> in terms of endearment crawling into the into the crib with the baby. That was that was my grandmother. And she could be very serious about getting things done. And then she'd be off on another crazy adventure. I remember when I was tiny, she would decide she wanted to go see one of her brothers or, or sister. And she'd say, Stevie, go get some unaware and a toothbrush and meet me in the Buick. (laughs) (laughs) And we would be getting, we'd be getting out toward the edge of town. And I'd say, Minnie, um, have you talked to mother about this? She, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Do you have a dime? <laughs> and we would, we would pull over and she would call her and she said, mother, he's got to go to school. And she'd go every day. <laughs> oh, I love your we'd, grandmother. Yeah. And then we'd have to turn around and go back to town. And I did too. She, she was my, she was the, my light. She was my mother and mom was my dad. You know, oh, they, they kind of re- set up those roles. Right. Good cop, bad cop. Kind of thing, yeah, maybe. and and mother and mother and my grandmother didn't get along a lot uh, because my grandmother was crazy about my uncle, her mother's brother, and you know mother was the, my mom was the responsible one, and Bill was the one that always kind of needed a little bit of help here and there, and mother had this value system that said you know I should be I she should love me more because I'm providing, and because she didn't because she loved being needed by her son, um, they had some. They had some tension that lasted way into my adulthood, but they they went on one trip. My mother was a genealogist, just a genius genealogist, and they she had an opportunity to go to Atlanta to the archives to look up family stuff, and she asked Ninny if she wanted to go, and she said, I don't want to go study old dead people, and she said, well, <laughs> you don't have to, and there's a lot of things that you can do there. She went, okay, so they got in the car, and mother was complaining about something and then he said pull over and she said what are you gonna do so I'm, I'm walking home if we ain't gonna have fun i don't want to do this mm. and she said you know you're right and they they made a pact actually mother was the one making the pact that no complaining that the entire trip there would just be no complaints they would only look for things to laugh about together and damned if they didn't they they had this great trip it didn't permanently change the dynamic of the relationship but it gave them an anchor and i think they used that from time to time when things really got bad one of them would say let's let's play atlanta right and they would they would it would be a truce yeah wow that takes a lot for your mom to say okay compartmentalize it you know and say and flip that switch because a lot of people would be mad and you know Unable to do it because they'd be embarrassed to have to do it, but that's pretty. But great. also, and your grandmother that, was right. Yeah, the thing that Jackie, the thing that that struck me about that was it gave my mother the opportunity to do something to justify doing something she really wanted to do, which was be a little wild and crazy herself, and just go have fun. She never and, got a chance to do that, did she? N- not much, not a lot. Hmm. But she was a dame. She was just. She was just. Uh, uh, the bank that she worked for ultimately made her 
uh, kind of in charge of the proof department, which is the folks that make sure all the money that goes out and comes in is accounted for. And she, uh, it was a, the, you know, it was the turn of uh, the civil rights movement in the late sixties. And they were hiring a lot more people of color to do actual jobs rather than just be, uh, menial tasks. Mm-hmm. And she trained this, she trained this, uh, this entire cadre of young black women in the running of the administration of a bank. And they, they treated her like she was their mother. They loved her. She loved them. And, um, up until then, you know, we were in a little East Texas town that was extremely bigoted and biased. And she shared some of that until she started getting to know people whose skin just had more melanin in it than hers did. And uh, she would constantly come home going, this one or that one is just so smart. They're so smart and they, they can learn anything. And I just love working with them because they're so smart and they want to do such a good job. And that, that responsibility and that diligence was, um, that was her, that was her jam. That, that was her candy. And what about your maternal grandfather? He was not in the picture. Not in the picture. Uh, that ended That ended when mother was about eight. He would come to visit from time to time and stay with my uncle. Um, we called him Big Daddy. And um, I, I never really got to know him very well, but my grandmother didn't want to see him. He didn't want to see her. And since she lived with us a lot of the time, um, he would always be visiting my uncle. And I'd go up there and get to see him some. But um, it was it was sort of, uh, you know, like you say, compartmentalized. You said your mom got a master's degree without an undergrad. Yeah. The, the bank had a thing. Uh, well, SMU went through uh, the Southwest Swigsby, Southwest Institute of Graduate Business Studies. Um, they created this master's program in banking. And they went out through East Texas and Texas in general offering this to uh, to particularly women, but men too, who had a certain number of years of experience in banking that they would count um, against an undergraduate degree, and then they give them a test. And so since mother had all these years since she was 16 and she was now, you know, approaching 40, um, they said, well, you know, we'll we'll look at those years uh, and then we'll give you some homework to do and you can come take the test. She said, why don't you just have me take the test? <laughs> and uh, Better and yet, I could even write the test for you and guys. Let, and let's see, yeah, yeah. And, well, she, you know, she was not arrogant and she was not even particularly confident about some things, but she wanted to take the test to see what was on the test. Sure. To see what they, they thought was important. And she aced the test and they went, oh, well, uh, I'm, we're not sure if you need this program. And she went, no, I, I want the paper. Yeah. I want I want to show these men, you know, she'd get these, they'd get a new president who was, you know, 10 years younger than her, who didn't know really squat about banking, right. <laughs> but made more money than her because, you know, he was vertical and had a penis and she would just uh, break them in. She'd train them and. So she got her degree. She wrote her thesis. It was, it was amazing to, to them. I, I, you know, I never read it because it was banking, but I was so proud of her. Um, 
she she was really proud of us. In fact, we both graduated. I got my undergraduate. She got her master's within six months of each other. Oh, good for you guys. That's pretty great. Mm-hmm. And this was when you were in Missouri because you were born in Arkansas, but then she took you back to Texas. Oh, to Texas, no, rather. she took me. She took me to Texas, right. and then I went to school Texas Tech in in Lubbock, and out of that, I went straight into the Air Force, and that's what took me to Missouri, to Whiteman Air Force Base. Have you ever lived in the Northeast? Yeah, i uh, I was in uh, I was in New York. Uh, I had been directing uh, at a theater in Houston, and we did an original play competition. And I loved the place so much that when we I went to New York after it was over to kind of decompress, and I and I, I couldn't find anything off Broadway that was any better written than what we did. So I said, "What does it take? What does it take to produce an off Broadway play?" And I found a, a general manager who had a Tony, and he said, "Well, it takes this and this and this." And I said, "Well, give me the steps, and I'll go through it." And so I went through the steps, moved to New York, and we produced that play. And my mother. Got, what what was got, the name of the play? I'm sorry. It was called Man Enough. We got we got rave reviews in the New York Times, but we just didn't. Uh, you know, I grew up. My stepfather was had these sayings that he would say all the time, thinking that it was wisdom. But he would say, "If you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door." And the thing that I learned is, you can build the greatest mousetrap in the world, but unless you market it, nobody's going to come. And so we had a beautiful, wonderful play, but we didn't get enough momentum to uh, for it to survive financially. But gosh, we got some great reviews. And my mother got to come up and see the play. And she had fought me tooth and nail, both of them had, when in high school when I wanted to go into radio and TV and film. And so I, you know, so I, majored, I majored in business because they wouldn't support me any other way, and I didn't have the gumption at the time to defy them. And so it was much later that I started doing these things as a hobby and then worked it into a career. But she came up, she saw the play, and the play's very moving. And, and it's about uh, a very, very, very bright older brother coming home because his uh, mentally challenged younger brother is being about to be institutionalized. And that mirrored my home life. We, my stepfather had a son that had severe learning disabilities. And so that's one of the things that attracted me to the story. But in the show, the, the, the challenged child, the young man, is the one who stands up to his older brother and is man enough to say, I've got to do this. I'm, I'm a danger. And at that moment, it's a very emotional moment in the play. I'm, I'm going through it again right now. And I was sitting in the back row of the theater with, beside my mother, and she reached over and took my hand. My mother was not a demonstratively affectionate woman. She took my hand and with tears rolling down her face, she says, I get it now. I get it. And um, it was it That's was a, quite a uh, moment. huh? It was a fabulous moment. Yeah. So did she ever cut loose? And, and <laughs> you said she wasn't, you know, outwardly emotional because she always had to be so in control of her scenario. Right. right? So did oh, yeah. she ever bust out? Well, um, maybe in her own way. Yeah, in her own way. She, my stepfather loved to dance. They met dancing. They met on the dance floor. And, um, you know, once they got married, uh, those opportunities were fewer, but they would do it. They, they would have those times when they would just go with 
a couple of friends here and there and dance. My mother was not very social. Um, they were scrambling between the two of them to to make ends meet all all of my life. And so they were very conservative about that. But when they would go dancing, you know, and he would say, Margie, let your hair down. Let's go. And and she'd go, well, okay. Let's do it. And then, and, <laughs> she and had to think about it. <laughs> she had to think about it because she knew alcohol How do I do was going to be involved. You know, she knew alcohol was going to be involved and that um, that, that would probably loosen her up more than she was w- willing to let other people see. But uh, they they go out. They'd have a good time. And she she was just a delightful human being when she would when she felt like all the eyes were dotted and all the t's were crossed. She was it, it was homework first for me. You know, I got home in the afternoon. It was you can do whatever you want to do if your homework's done. And so that's been a thing all my life is you know do the do the doing first, then do the playing. Right. We tried that in our house <laughs> with our boys. <laughs> How'd that work out yeah, for well, you, Jackie? Hey, you know, the, the younger one is about to graduate in a couple of months, so college. Well, <laughs> so I yeah. guess I guess it all worked out, however it worked. That's great. <laughs> so when it came for you looking for a female partner, mm-hmm. you have your mom and then you have your grandmother as these role models. Would you refer to these two women in your life as role models? Yeah. I, th- I think that's probably true. So did you uh, run un- run away from that when you were looking for someone to fall in love with or did you or did you kind of go in the same direction? Yeah, my yeah, when when my mother got married, my mother had never cried in my presence until after I was 10 years old when she got married to my stepfather. And she went from this incredibly independent woman in front of me to a very demanding emotional person with him because her expectation was when I get married, I'm not going to have to do everything anymore. I'll, I'll do my part. He'll do his part. And my stepfather, when, when he married my mother, like within months, his boss absconded with the funds and left him holding the bag with a, a company that was oh. sort of a Bernie Madoff kind of a situation. And no. so he, he, he lost his job and also lost his ability to get hired. Because even though he had not perpetrated the fraud, he was left with the egg on his face. Holding the bag. And so, yeah, holding the bag. And she understood but was furious because, you know, I got married to, so that I wouldn't have to carry the whole weight. And those arguments that they made, uh, I was very disappointed in her. as a uh, You know, I was 10. And she was she was demanding and she was being a shrew and she was just being, I just went, Oh my gosh, this who is, is my this mom. woman. Who is yeah, this woman? Is this? And, and because he, he was, uh, he, he was not, he had a, he had a mentally challenged son who lived with my, his parents, my grandparents on the edge of town um, because he required constant supervision and attention. And so mother, mother was like, okay, I've gone from okay to to a bad situation now. And so when I started dating, I didn't, and I didn't, I didn't unpack this Jackie until way into my uh, late forties and early fifties. I, I wanted to be a provider. I wanted to be the answer. And so I was looking for unconsciously looking for uh, women that needed a white knight and that were needed to be rescued. And I found that I found I found a, 
a very beautiful, competent woman who was just emotionally a wreck because of the craziness of her family. And I, I tried to be the white knight. So we didn't have a relationship. I was, you know, the I was savior. Uh, I was the savior and, and I wasn't any good at it. You know, oh. um, <laughs> you know, did you I, think you were, but you, well, <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. I thought I was a white knight. I thought I was all, you know, I was going to be the answer to everything to myself and everything else. And that I would be valuable and I would be loved because I could bring something to the table. And um, it turned out that she was just, you know, in, I think she had bipolar disorder, actually, because um, there was no way. I, I remember we both we were doing really, really well. I had a really good job. She had a really good job. We had a house. Uh, we, were, we, we had bought a house. We both had cars. We were making good money. And she was miserable. And I said, what is what is we're, we're on top of the world? And she said, no, we're missing something. This is too good. Life's not supposed to work. Oh, that's and scary. that's when I yeah, and that's and that scared the crap out of me. That I just went oh, so it doesn't matter what the results of the reality is. You're looking for horror, and I can't rescue you from that. And um, and mother, interesting when I when I talked to her because you know mother had, had Harry was her uh, third husband. And I was looking at a divorce and I, I was very scared about her being disappointed. And she said, um, I'm sorry, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry that you're in this situation. Um, this is what I was talking about. And when when I was going to get married, she said, are you sure that this is going to be a partnership? And I didn't understand the question at the time. I thought I did. And I was defensive like any young person is. But what she was saying is she could see that. She could see that. She already saw it. She saw the the writing on the wall. And she was old enough to, you know, worked with many, many, many women uh, at the bank who, uh, who presented one face to the world and another to their confidants. Right. Wow. So your podcast... The Crossroad Diner is kind of a direct yeah. reflection of your life and, and yeah, the choices yes. you made. Right. Because Barbara, uh, my first wife, would not, um, when, we, when, when we were coming out of the reception from the wedding, she said, okay, that's the end of radio. That's the end of theater. That's the <gasps> oh end of acting. <laughs> and I said, what? She said, I don't like it. I don't like those people. I don't like the insecurity of it. That's done. Hmm. And I, so for 10 years, I did not act. I did not, we didn't even go to the theater. Um, and it was very, very difficult. So when she dropped the, you know, no matter what you do, it's not going to be enough thing. That was the beginning of the end of us. And I left the divorce court, walked into a theater, auditioned, and I was in that theater for two years Oh, good doing, for doing every show. But the Crossroad Diner is about, I knew, I knew from the time I was six years old that being in front of with around a mic and acting and performing was who I am. And my parents were scared of it. Then Barbara was scared of it. And, and I knew that I I knew it wasn't gonna be easy, but they were just like, no, don't do this. And you can't do this. We won't let you do this. You've got to go do something that makes sense. You got to go get a real job. And so when I went back, when I went back to theater, all of those gifts and natural capabilities 
now had to start learning the disciplines and the structures of those things. Your muscles have to get reconditioned yeah. again. Yeah, and I had I had talent. What I didn't have was discipline and training. And so I started working on that. And and so my mission now that I'm moving into the legacy area of my life is to be an encourager to say, you came here for a reason. And it might be to be a mom. It might be to be a dad. It might be to be a provider. It might be whatever it is. There is something in you that resonates when you are being your highest self and you feel it. And it may or may not be a career. It may just be the thing that you do. You make money to make money so that you can go do this. Or it may be your career. I don't know. I'm not saying run away from home. What I'm saying is pay attention to the voices within you that are calling you to be who it is that you are and to serve those purposes that in, that elevate you to your highest self. Pay attention to that, that you will never be happier than when someone that you love gets a win and that you've been an instrument in helping that happen. And you can't do that unless you're at your performing at your highest self. You, I couldn't say it any better, but it's so true. We tell our kids to listen, you know, listen to that, your gut, right? When you're in mm-hmm. a scenario, you gotta, you really have to pay attention to it. And unfortunately, we are out of time. Out of time. Mr. McCurdy, Steve McCurdy uh, has been my <laughs> guest. The Crossroad Diner, please check it out. It's a wonderful podcast, and I just adore talking to you. So I hope we get to do it again soon. Oh, I would love to. And uh, look for Jackie's session on Crossroad because she was a she was a delightful guest. Wonderful. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Should Have Listened to My Mother. Mm-hmm.